We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, we begin in verse 24. Now rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And to this end I labor, struggling with all His energy, which so powerfully works in me. Lord, teach us how we are to live in light of your supremacy and your sufficiency. God, teach us today what it looks like to truly be made spiritually of the right stuff. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated? So as we jump into the text this morning and seek to answer this big question, how are we to live our lives in light of the supremacy of Christ? Verse 24 jumps right off the table because the first thing, if you're going to have the right stuff, the first thing that Paul mentions is you better have the right attitude, the right attitude. And Paul jumps right in in verse 24 and simply says this. He says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. I rejoice in what was suffered for you. He's talking about his own suffering. You can go back through the New Testament and read what Paul had endured in the beatings and the imprisonments and the shipwrecks and all of the things, the ridicule, the way he was treated, the way the Jewish people threw him out, the way he was looked down upon, all of that, he says, I have done and it was worth it. And the reason it was worth it is because those sufferings have actually brought me to a place of rejoicing. Now, a watching world will never understand this text. Someone who's not saved will never understand this text. And someone who is spiritually immature will never understand this text. How could anyone say that their attitude of rejoicing came because of the sufferings that they experienced? Well, all throughout Pauline literature, we discover really two major themes about Paul and his view on suffering. The the first view that Paul had was that he was thankful. We see it in this text because outside of Paul's suffering, the church would never have gone. Paul's three missionary journeys where the gospel went, how people got saved. He saw his sufferings being good for the church because not only did it advance the cause of the gospel, but the church also saw in him how God was using him through his sufferings. So I would ask you this, How many of you, we're not talking about your sufferings right now, but how many of you know through other people's testimony and how other people have lived their lives and how other people have walked through difficulty that it has ministered to you in ways that you have been blown away by the Holy Spirit's power in their life and how they have walked through things and then at some point in your Christian walk, something happened to you, something difficult, something problematic, something that you didn't think you could make it through. And as you leaned on the Lord by the Holy Spirit power, He reminded you of that person in your 
church that you grew up with. He reminded you of that family member. He reminded you of how people walked and how they endured and how they suffered and how they cling to the Lord. And I would tell you, friends, some of you are hurting right now. Some of you are suffering right now. Some of you in here are going through difficulty. And yes, we're going to talk about in just a moment what God's doing in you with that. But you may never know the impact that your life is making on people as they watch and witness how you hold on to the Lord and how you love the Lord and how dependent you are on the Lord and how you desire the Holy Spirit. Because friends, life's not easy. It's not easy for those that are unsaved and it's not easy for the saved. And what we come to understand is, is that now, not just is it good for the church and members of the church and the growth of the church, but this is where a lot of us would step back. But suffering for the Christian is also good for you. Paul understood this. In fact, he understood it so much that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ and share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, that's a prayer. Do you know what Christ went through? Do you know how he was treated? Do you know how he was mocked? Do you know how he was ridiculed? Do you know how he was beaten? To make the statement that I want to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. What Paul is saying is, he's not saying I'm a masochist and I want to suffer for suffering's sake. He's saying that I'm willing to walk through whatever I have to walk through if it'll help me to know Christ more and love Christ more. And even though that may be difficult for some of us to be willing to pray right now, the reality of it has already come to bear in some of your lives. How many of you in here have ever walked through anything that had someone told you beforehand that you were going to have to go through it, you would have said, I'll never make it through that. I'll, I'll never get through that. I'd never be able to endure that. I, I wouldn't be able to experience that. I, I, that's off the table for me. But now you're looking back at your life, and this isn't just senior adults. Even some of you here that are young people have been through some things, and you now stand as a walking, talking, breathing testimony to the fact that it's not that you enjoyed the suffering, but it's that you now are thankful for what the suffering has produced in your life because you now know what it is to lean on Christ. You now know what it is to have everything taken out from under you. From some of you, it was a relationship. For some of you, it was grief. For some of you, it was sickness. For some of you, it was trying to battle an addiction. For some of you, it was sin that had overtaken your life and you found yourself suffering in a real way. But what you now know is that the God of the mountaintop is also the God of the valley. And some of you by experience now could stand and testify that I don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. I don't know what next month is gonna bring. I certainly don't know what five or 10 years down the road is going to bring. But what I can tell you is the same God that was with me when I went through is with me now. And you're closer to him. That's why Paul could say he rejoiced in his suffering. But then we come to a text that's hotly debated and, to be honest, very misinterpreted. Because he says in the second part of verse 24, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for his sake of the body, which is the church. Now, Let's be sure we understand what he's not saying. When Paul says, I fill up in my flesh, it's not that the atonement of Christ was only partial. 
The Bible can't mean that because it says all through it that Jesus finished what he came to do on Calvary. So there's no suffering that Paul had to do to somehow complete the atonement. All Paul is simply saying here is that he continues to suffer because after they killed Jesus, they wanted to keep on piling up the punishment on Jesus. But because Jesus was gone and ascended, we sang, sang that this morning, ascended evermore. And so what now? Now all of the pain, all of the persecution is now doled out on the representatives of Christ and the representatives of Christ are saved people that make up the church. So the church throughout 2,000 years has borne up the afflictions of Christ because we suffer before because of Christ's name and for Christ's name. And that's what Paul's bringing forth. So yet we understand that, that Paul all throughout, even in the book of Philippians, which is known as that joy epistle, that it's written from terrible confines, that it's written from imprisonment, right? Yet Paul has this continual theme, not just in Philippians, but we see it here in Colossians too, this theme of joy. So I think what all of us need to hear is we, we think about what it looks like to have the right stuff, what it looks like to have the right attitude, is that for a lot of us today, we need to remember that your life was never, ever intended to be joyless ever. Yet, it seems like there is a strong contingent of people that claim to be Christian who live like they have the Eeyore syndrome all over their life. Always down, always upset, always angry, always mad, always pessimistic. Things are always wrong. Seems like, I, I, I mean, if you're not careful, some of you have seen this. If you keep that scowl on your face, it could become permanent. And Paul's point is, is that if you're truly saved, it ought to be characterized by joy in your life. And you say, well, hold on a minute just hold on just a minute, that may be easy for you to say, but I've got this and this and this and this going on. Paul's point is that your circumstances in your life, the people in your life, the issues in your life, that those have absolutely nothing to do with it. Because if you know God, then knowing God should be the most exciting thing you've ever experienced. And so because of that, some of you need to identify some joy thieves in your life. Does anybody know what a joy thief is? Do not look at the person on the pew with you. But there is such thing in life as joy thieves. They're not only just people, but if you're not careful, you'll allow anything that shouldn't have the power to do it to steal your joy. Sometimes it is people. Sometimes it's circumstances and problems and issues. And that what you realize then is that our faith, our Christianity, our walk with the Lord rises above all of those things. So if we're going to have the right stuff, it's got to start with the right attitude. But it's not just the right attitude, number two. Number two, we got to be a people who have the right purpose. That's how we live our lives in light of the supremacy of Christ. Look at verses 25 through 28, the right purpose. Paul writes, I have become its servant by the commission of God. It gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now 
disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. What does the right purpose look like? For Paul, it was understanding that he had a call on his life, that he had a summons on his life. And a lot of us, when we read this, you're immediately going to, to we're tempted to think just about ministerial callings and full-time vocational callings. But let me take that off the table today. You may not be called to be the pastor of a church or a foreign missionary or to be a worship leader or to be a, a student leader, but if you are saved, there is a summons on your life. There is a call on your life that God has issued. And so because God had issued has issued that call, when we understand that in light of what God's calling you to do, I, I don't know what that is, but we need to quit teaching students that there are people that are called to ministry and people that aren't called to ministry. Everyone who is saved is called to ministry. Some of us may be called to preach in ministry. Some of you may be called to nursing in ministry or teaching in ministry or whatever that may look like. But wherever you're called, you ought to view that as a summons by the Lord God Almighty. And that's how Paul saw his life. How much different would you approach your job? I, I tell students all the time, right now, you're called to be a high school student. That's the call. You, that's the, the freeing thing about it. Right now in high school, you're called to be that. When you're in college, you're called to be there. And then you are God's calling that places you in different areas of life. And we look at those things like a callness, like a calling. And Paul says that in his call, that the word of God, to preach it in its fullness. So it's this is one of the texts that drives the preaching ministry here. There's a reason here that, that we don't just approach things where, we, where we're one Sunday in one text and one Sunday in the next text and we go here, there, and yon. No, the reason that there is a systematic way that we approach the Bible is that accountability before God means that I need to be able to look God in the face and say, Lord, I did my best to preach your word in its fullness. So, so we're verse by verse, book by book, walking through the Bible because we need every bit of the Word of God. All of God's Word is inspired, correct? So Paul understood the need for it to be preached in its fullness. And the specifics of preaching God's Word in its fullness is that the mystery, he talk, keeps talking about this mystery. Well, when we hear about a mystery, sometimes we think about like a Dateline or a 2020 episode, like it's something that can't be solved. That's not what the New Testament is talking about when it talks about a mystery. When it talks about a mystery, it is a truth that has now revealed that was not once revealed. So when you get to the New Testament, this mystery that has been revealed, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, by which that's all of us. So what it now means is, is that the Messiah is now realized, that mystery is out of the way, but not only is the Messiah realized, but also now that Gentiles, that people besides Jews could be brought into the fold for salvation. And then he said the greatest part of this mystery, the greatest aspect, this is the, the heart of the gospel and the beauty of it all. Did you see where it, what it says? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
If you don't highlight anything else in this text, you ought to highlight that phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What an amazing thing to just focus on for just a moment, that Christ lives in you. He died for you that he might live in you. He died for you that he might live in you. And now that becomes the source of power and change and deliverance, not from inside you, but because Christ is in you. The only reason to ever look inside for anything is if you are saved and you know that Christ resides in your heart. It is the source of all power, but it is also the reason that we don't have the excuses that we can't. What did Paul say in Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Remember what Paul is talking about there. He's not talking about superhuman feats. He's talking about that he can endure all circumstances, that he can have joy in all situations. Why? Because he knows the one who lives in him. And so because of that, Paul says, there is a reason now when he talks about this hope that is now in us this glorious riches, this Christ in you, the hope of glory. So because of that, Paul says that we preach or we, verse 28, proclaim him. We preach Christ. And the goal is not just to quote unquote, get someone saved. The goal is that someone who gets saved spiritually matures in Christ and becomes more like Jesus all the time. For Paul, it wasn't just enough for someone to commit their life to Christ initially, but they needed to learn what it was to walk with Christ. That's what we call discipleship and learning to look more like Jesus all the time. Paul said the way that he would do this, you see three words there, proclamation, that's public declaration, that's what's happening here, admonishing, that's a word we don't use very much anymore, and it's actually one we don't practice much anymore, because admonishing is the warning against sin, and then teaching, that's imparting positive truth, so admonishing and teaching are, are the two sides of the same coin, one is to impart positive truth, and the other is to, to warn against sin. And so as we understand this purpose, we need to redefine the way we're understanding how to find purpose. Because if we're not careful, we'll allow a secularism to come into the church and, and allow a philosophy to drive even what we're telling young people and ourselves. And that is, you need to find your purpose for your life and you need to look within, look within and find what it is that is your purpose in life. And I would tell you, look without. Don't look within yourself to find your purpose. Look to God. Look to the world and say, there's got to be something bigger than just what I want to do, but what is it that I need to do? What is it that I'm called to do? What is the right purpose in my life? And then number three, number three, how do we live our lives in light of the supremacy of Christ? If we're going to have the right stuff, verse 29, you've got to have the right work ethic. You've got to have the right work ethic. Look at what Paul says. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I'm a 100% believer in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. 
But the providence of God has never been an excuse for man to not exercise his own responsibility. In fact, we see it working out really well. If you want to help to understand this, we're going to look to a, a specific Bible passage in just a moment. But Paul's basic point is just this. You cannot succeed in ministry or life without hard work. Laziness, apathy, complacency, they have no place in the Christian life. So he uses this verb on purpose. This You, you may have seen the word struggling is the way it's translated in the NIV, struggling. This is, this is an athletic word. It talks about competing in athletics and giving maximum, full out, 100% effort. But how do you give that effort? With all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I love the story in Luke chapter five. Sometimes I need a narrative story to help me understand a biblical principle. And I don't know of a better story than Luke chapter five. Jesus comes to the disciples. And you remember, they've been fishing all night. How many did they call? Zero. And Jesus said, well, I want you to push out and let your nets out again on the other side. And what does Peter say? He said, we've been tolling all night, but at your word, we'll give it another shot, right? So they go out and they let the nets down one more time and they haul in so many fish that the nets began to break and they can barely get them over the side of the boat. Now, think about that for just a moment. Peter and the group had been tolling all night and yet when God comes into the picture and commands them to go back out, it isn't that they didn't have to work. It isn't that they didn't have to put the nets down. They still were required to work and do what God told them to do. But the difference is, is that they still were giving 100% effort, but that 100% effort was now energized by the Holy Spirit of God. If we understand a minister's calling, if we understand the calling on your life, it's not just well, I'm going to let go and let God. No, I'm going to do everything in my power. Even though my power is useless without the Lord, I'm going to do everything in my power, and then I'm going to allow God to take what I have done and energize it and use it for His glory. And when, that, and when we see things that way, when we understand that we are 100% dependent, yet we're also 100% responsible, that he's the one who energizes our energy, then we've really began to understand what I think the Bible helps us to see is the yet not I principle. Yet not I, but Christ in me. So the Spirit doesn't make our effort unnecessary, but the Holy Spirit makes our effort effective. The issue that, that Paul is getting at, he recognized that his life had not been easy, that his work had not been easy. But we live in a world in which people have made things being easy the goal of their life. We want victory without battle. We want wisdom without study. We want wealth without work. And the greatest and highest value of everything now seems to be convenience. Have you noticed that? We want everything to be convenient. We don't want to do anything if it's not convenient. And there is a time for convenience, and convenience is nice. But no one ever accomplished anything great because they always chose convenience. Never. Never, ever, ever. So 
I want to just give you today some things to think about. One is a, a quote, and it's called The Missionary Heart. And it says this, Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. You know, Paul uses this a- athletic phrase here when he talks about what it looks like to struggle with all energy and all effort. Throughout time, we've learned a lot about people who have strived in athletics. I, I love what the preacher Adrian Rogers said. He said, half-heartedness and mediocrity don't inspire anyone to do anything. Isn't that great? But we, we learned from some some athletes too. And I just want to share a couple of things with you today. John Wooden, which some people would argue is the greatest basketball coach to ever take the floor. This is what he said. Do not let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do. I love that. There are so many people today who don't engage in anything because all they think about is what they can't do. I don't know about everything you can't do, but I'm positive there are some things you can And because there are some things you can do, do the very best you can at those things and then let God take care of the rest. And you'll probably also figure out why you're doing that, that you're actually, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, are better at some things than you ever thought that you would be. Derek Jeter played for the New York Yankees. And he said this, there may be people that have more talent than you, but there's no excuse for anyone to work harder than you do. That's simple. That's simple. I I don't know what talent level you have or intelligence level you have, ability level you have, but all of us can be the best that we can be. And that what the Army slogan is? Be all that you can be. Be what it is that God called you to be. You know, when I was growing up, and, and it's amazing the, the things that we transfer as, as I've coached youth sports with, with my son through the years and, and even now, when I'm watching an athletic event, there is one thing that that I think above everything else when when you're looking out at people that are that are on an athletic field and, and this applies to everything, but these two things are the two things you can do something about. You may not can throw a ninety five mile an hour fastball. You may not have the physical ability to hit four hundred. You may not can dunk a basketball. You may not can run a four four forty. But here are two things that you can do. Number one, you can hustle. You can hustle. Now that applies to life too. You may not can do everything that everybody else can do, but you can hustle. That's number one. And number two, you can have a decent attitude. You can have a decent attitude. Those are the two things that you can control. Don't let anyone have a better attitude than you and don't let anyone out hustle you. If those two things take place, it's amazing the work ethic that is we're called to and what that looks like. When Paul got to the end of his life, some of the last words that he ever wrote were in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. And he said this, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. In other words, I've struggled, I've fought, and here I am. I'm at the end, and I can honestly say I did the best I could with what I had. I'm not telling you today that you can, there's lies all over the place, that you can do whatever it is that you want to do. Have you heard that? Students, look at me. You can do whatever you want to do. 
That's just not true. There's some things you cannot do. Physically, mentally, there's some things you cannot do. But there are some things you can do. And you ought to do your absolute dead level best. And here's why. Because the Bible says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you ought to do it all for the glory of God. And Paul says if you're going to be someone who's made of the right stuff, it means that you're going to do it all for the glory of God. You say, well, I can't do that on my own. You're exactly right. That's why you need Jesus.